Hello, and welcome to Creative Life Lessons, a podcast that dives into what it takes to build a creatively fulfilling life and career. I'm your host, Lyle Schemmer, and today we'll be speaking with Eduardo Ballerini, a seasoned film, television, and voiceover actor who's been described by the New York Times as the voice of God. Eduardo has appeared in over 50 films and TV shows, including Last Days of Disco, Boardwalk Empire, Romeo Must Die, 24, and the BBC's Ripper Street. But he's probably best known for his role as heroin addict Corky Caporale in The Sopranos, and as the star chef in the indie classic Dinner Rush, where he starred opposite Danny Aiello and Sandra Bernhard. Beyond this impressive run as an actor in front of the camera, Eduardo has also become one of the most acclaimed narrators in the audiobook world, having twice been awarded the Best Male Narrator from the Audio Publishers Association, as well as the 2019 Audiophile Golden Voice Lifetime Achievement Award. Welcome to the podcast, Eduardo. Thank you. Great to be with you. I'm really pleased that our sort of journeys could sort of intersect again after a a long time. I've known you. Um, And I think before we jump into the first official question, I just want to sort of talk a little bit about how we first met, because I think there's kind of a useful creative life lesson in that. So do you recall? I do. We met at uh, a birthday party at the Jane Street Hotel, and I believe it was uh, the direct film director, Amos Poe. And it may have been his 50th birthday. He's a bit older. Um, and we met and we just kind of talked and hit it off. And we somehow stayed in touch. I think this was pre-sort of iPhone world, right? Or iPhone has just started. I, I can't remember exactly. Um, but we somehow exchanged information, maybe the old-fashioned way. We wrote something down. Uh, and we stayed in touch. And then we, we crossed paths a little bit in the advertising world. Um, and somehow, you know, when you meet people you like and you meet people you connect with, you just stay in touch with them. Well, thank you for saying. Um, you know, it's funny because there's there's a sort of discrepancy in this story. I was under the impression that I had crashed Salman Rushdie's birthday party. <laughs> and my friend Mary Healy, who accompanied me, and it was actually her birthday last weekend. So I decided oh. to call her and sort of ask her what she remembered. Okay. And so... She basically said that when she approached you at the bar, Salman Rushdie was sitting at the bar, further down the bar, and that's why really? that that sort of seed got planted in my head that I had that we were at Salman Rushdie's party. But I think it was a kind of composite. Now, was he there accidentally? What, or was he in a friend of Amos? I, I'm thinking uh, that's, that he that's was, a whole other podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's I think that's probably what happened. But then I also recalled that my friend Gene Schofield had invited me to a screening at the Jane Hotel. That was the, the reason why I was at the hotel. And okay. her her husband, um, Alex Maxwell, had just um, made a, f- a short film called Burr, and there was this kind of screening there. And that's actually why we were at the Jane Hotel. Okay. But for, like, I've been telling people the story for, like, <laughs> 15 years that I crashed I like Sam- your version. Salman Rushdie's birthday party. Yeah, that's much better. It's much better. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, it's funny how memory works like that. But, you know, I think that the, the lesson is it's important to have proximity to the world that you want to participate in and the power of, of social networks, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, Niall Ferguson and, you know, this idea of you ha- 
the, the more people you know, the more you're sort of cross-pollinating into different worlds, the more opportunity is going to come your way. And um, I just wanted to sort of acknowledge that, like we're yeah coming back full circle now. You know, I know. I don't think uh, the word podcast was on anyone's lips when we met, and yet here we are doing a podcast. So um, it's important to sort of stay open to what comes your way and what the universe is going to throw at you, because we never would have imagined this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, um, so I, you know, I, I just like to start off by, you know, hearing about your professional journey in your own yeah. words and, um, you know, just sort of like walk us through how you kind of began and how you've arrived at this present moment. Sure. Uh, I'm going to go back a, a little bit further into my sort of childhood because I think there were a lot of seeds planted there which have, have since grown. So I came from a, a very artistic, bohemian, academic family. My father is a poet. Uh, and a linguist, my mother is an art historian and a, a writer, and the house was always full of artists and poets and sculptors and painters and musicians, and and this was in New York City. I grew up downtown. My father taught at NYU. And I kind of knew that I was going to do something creative with my life. It was just sort of predestined somehow that I was going to fit into this world. I didn't know how exactly. And then I, I wanted to be a writer uh, when I was in high school and in college. I studied writing and literature I graduated uh, from Wesleyan University with honors in English, and then I got a scholarship to study Latin in Rome, in the Vatican, believe it or not, and I went, and I was thinking I was going to be an academic, and somehow that summer, it was a very trying summer, I was on my own, I was 22 years old, I was you know, away from home, I, just, I quit everything and I joined a theater company. There was this group of expat American actors in Rome, and I found an ad for them in the newspaper. And I thought, what the hell? I'm going to do this. It sounds you know, creative. It sounds uh, interactive. There's other people. And I, I did that, and then I, I quit the course, and I came back to New York City, and I started taking classes at HB Studios and Lee Strasberg, and I started scouring Backstage Magazine, as you did back in the day, and I started acting. But it, I kind of just tumbled into it. And I started getting parts, and I started working, and then things started growing. And then there was a moment, I remember, somewhere in my 20s when I was sort of an actor, as a professional actor at this point, that I didn't understand how I'd gotten there. It was very, it was very bizarre to me. And then I thought, okay, there are other things I want to do as well. So I started writing a little bit. I, I wrote a short film. I directed it. It went to Sundance. Um, and I, I was collaborating with other people. And there was always this idea that, like, I wanted to do more than just acting, I, something. And then I'm, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. The, the world of audiobooks, as you mentioned in your intro, started growing, and I kind of tumbled into that. And somebody asked me to record a book, which I did, and I enjoyed the experience very much. And then in the last five or so years, I've largely been doing that. So it's kind of this combination, my professional life, of falling into things accidentally and then also trying to shape them to my desires at the same time. And I think that's probably true of most careers. There's a certain arbitrariness, there's a certain randomness to it, and yet you have to have some sort of sense of which direction you want to go in. And you're going to kind of steer this unwieldy boat somehow, right? And you're going to try to get yourself to this port. So that has been, that's the very condensed version of my story. And I, I hope we can sort of dig into it a little more. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that it's important for people, for creative people especially, to sort of know what they're good at and to know what energizes them, right? And and find ways, how do you find a way professionally to play to your strengths? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. clearly, like, like in, my, in my own story, it was very clear when I was in high school that my superpower was writing, you know? So, like, I didn't go off to try to do something other, you know, I didn't right. try to go off and I didn't try to be an actor. I didn't try to be a political scientist. Right. I, you know, I was like, I need to find a way to monetize this talent and you know i i think that in a lot of cases that is actually the way to sort of succeed is to to is to sort of be able to recognize in yourself your strengths yes. and find opportunities that play to those strengths you have to be honest and you have to be honest about who you are uh and i've been fortunate that even though i i feel like my career has sort of wandered at times and taken me to places that i didn't necessarily want to go that I've had some kind of internal compass, which has said to me, you're going the wrong way. Try to get yourself back this way. Try something else. And it's always been there. And it's, you know, I can always tell when I'm doing what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. Um, Unfortunately, with careers, it's just sort of the nature of the beast that you sometimes have to do things just to survive or get ahead. Um, But I've always had this, this... this compass that tells me, like, you're on the right track or you're not on the right track. And it's taken me a long time. I feel like now, uh, sort of in the, you know, 20 years into this business, I finally have a hold on what it is that I want to do. Um, it's taken me a while, but I'm very pleased to have gotten here. Hmm. The, you know, I think that's a good segue to the next, a very neat, elegant segue to the next question, which is, um, what do you look for in a project? And specifically, what do you look for in a role? I remember early on, I, I did an interview at a film festival, and this, this journalist asked me, uh, what do you want to do with your career? And it was such a broad question. I didn't quite know how to answer it. And I said to her, I just don't ever want to do the same thing twice. And I think what I meant by that was I want to continually challenge myself. I want to make sure that I just don't slip into this one type who does this one thing and everybody knows they can call him and he'll be reliable for this one thing. And people have made very nice careers doing that, but it wasn't of interest to me. And what I've noticed is, as I look back is that my, my career has kind of fallen into these like eight-year chunks. It's almost like the seven-year itch plus one. You know, it's like... After about eight years, I have to do something else. I have to try something else. I got to keep moving. And so what I look for in a role is something that will challenge me. I'm also somebody who likes to do a lot of research. I think this is the academic side of me. So I like to get a role which is going to require me to do a lot of homework about it, to find out about the world, to find out about the person. Um, And that's what excites me. I don't like to do something that I feel like it's easy, like that, oh, okay, uh, yeah, we're going to, you know, there's this part, it's this guy who grew up in this uh, bohemian uh, household, and then he uh, went to college and wanted to be a writer, and then he became an actor, and we're going to cast you in the role. That wouldn't be of great interest to me, right? Because that's, that's me, and I don't, I don't necessarily want to play myself. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I think sort of in a way what you're touching on is this, there's this sort of inherent tension in, in, I think in most creative people's careers, which is comfort versus growth, 
you know, yeah. and you can, you can become comfortable doing something that you know you're good at, but you're not going to be growing. Right. I had this one cautionary tale in my life. I met this guy. He was on like season seven of some procedural show out in LA and he had the big house with the fancy car and the, you know, the, the forever pool looking over the twinkling lights and the model girlfriend. And he had it all, right? And he was miserable. He was just a miserable guy. And he said to me, I was at this little party at his house, and he was like, I do the same thing every week. It's the same scene, right? He was like the fourth character in the show, right? So... It's like, it's the same scene, just rewritten slightly differently every week. He's like, I can't stand it. Like, I just want to do something else. And I remember talking to him. I was like, all right, don't ever become this guy. <laughs> like, the trappings are very seductive, right? All the twinkling lights and the, you know, all that. But it was like, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, see, I can see that. Um I'll just move along to, to this sort of... Well, actually, no. I want to go back and, and sort of react to something that you said in your, in your previous answer, which was the, the need for research and how that sort of energizes you. And, and that's sort of what the challenge is, I think, as an actor. Um, I, I'm going to take this specifically to, to the um, Sopranos role, uh, Corky Capodale. And, you know, I was watch, re-watching a bunch of the scenes where you're sort of in the Maserati against... <laughs> acting against uh, Michael Imperioli. Right. And, you know, you, you decide to, like, shoot up. The character decides to shoot up in the car. And one of the thing that, things that was sort of remarkable to me was the, the sort of physical acting, right? Just, like, the sort of the sort of facility with which you kind of like used your mouth to like right. pull the, right. the, the, the cover off of the syringe and to like yeah. light the heroin on the spoon. And I, I was just thinking like, like that's something that you clearly have had to have practiced and thought about. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I mean, just, just talk about that for a sure. second, if you will. You know, I, when I got cast in the Sopranos, I didn't have much time between getting the call and actually shooting. Um, it was really a matter of a few days. And I had actually originally read for a different role, um, the role of Meadows' boyfriend. Um, I don't know if you remember that role. The, the um, dentist or the one prior? No, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think his name was Finn. Finn. Uh, Finn was the dentist. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> I had read for that role and then it went to some other guy and he was great. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to be on The Sopranos. And then I get this call and they're like, oh, there's this other part. Uh, would you tape on it? And I said, sure. And I sent it over, and I was living in L.A., and then I get this call, and it's like, all right, get on a plane. You're going to be shooting in a couple of days. And I thought, okay, I have to learn how to be a junkie in two days. You know, I, I am not a junkie, uh, just for the record. Um, and so what I did was I, I got every movie I could find uh, that, had, uh, that dealt with heroin and heroin addicts. And the one that I kept coming back to was Sid and Nancy. Um, Gary Oldman, obviously, brilliant actor. And I think I watched Sid and Nancy about 10 times uh, between getting that call and filming. So as a teacher of mine said, it's okay to, to steal, just steal something good. So I feel like I stole a fair amount from Gary Oldman. I was like, I watched his physicality, I watched what he did, and I would just sort of sit in front of the TV and kind of imitate him and do those gestures and... 
Um, I didn't have any syringes to practice with. But then on the day of the shoot, uh, they gave me all this gear, basically, and this guy talked me through it. And so for a few hours before we're shooting, I'm just going over and over, like, how do you do this? How do you tie off? How do you light the thing? How do you do to make it as smooth as possible? Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was my condensed version of the research on that. I mean, I would love to have had, you know, weeks to do it. Uh, but yeah, I, I love getting into that. I love finding out how other people did it and then seeing what I can add to that. Looking at the sort of breadth of your career, it seems to be very carefully curated. And the question I want to sort of ask about that is how much of that is sort of on account of control that you've been able to exert over it versus, you know, lock fate or forces yeah. beyond your control? I think, you know, it's, it's funny because people have said to me lately, uh, now that I've found the success in the audio world, that like, what a, what a remarkable sort of run you've had of it. What a, what a great career. And I, I do feel like there's a certain element of, not that it's over, but there's kind of this all's well that ends well kind of thing, that because things are in a very nice place right now, all the rest of it seems like it lined up perfectly to lead me to this point. But I struggled mightily for many, many years. Um, there were a lot of projects that I was up for that I didn't get. Um, I, you know, I had, I was full of doubts about my own talents. I took a lot of projects and films that I, I wish I hadn't, but I needed to keep working. Um, and so all of that added up to bring me here. And so it, it kind of seems like, well, of course he was going to end up in this place, right? Of course it makes sense. And I do think that to a degree it does make sense because the audio world is this perfect combination of writing, literature, publishing, and acting. And if you take the arc of my life, you know, I came from this academic household and I wanted to be a writer and I always studied writers. And then I went off and became an actor on screen. And then this other world emerged and you put those two together and the timing was perfect and I was just right there waiting for it. It grew and exploded just as I was looking for something after my eight-year period. And like we met each other and it just took off. So... I do feel like there's a certain amount of luck uh, that is involved, excuse me, there's a certain amount of luck that is involved there. At the same time, I do take some credit in that I just, I never let go of the idea of who I was and what I wanted to do. So even in those sort of darker periods where things weren't going well necessarily, or I was doing a really stupid movie, and I was like... I still knew, it's that compass I was talking about earlier, that this wasn't where I wanted to be and I was going to have to find somewhere else. And it took a big break in my life. I lived in Los Angeles for many years and I basically one day decided I'd had enough and I moved back to New York and I moved back with basically one suitcase and I left everything behind and I said, I have to start over. And I did and I found new things in New York. But it took that act of regeneration, that act of rebirth, and that clearing of everything in order to find that. And that's right around the time that I met you. <laughs> interesting, interesting. You know, it's it's funny because I think about, you know, I mean, I've cast so many commercials. And, you know, so often when I'm sitting with the directors and, and thinking about who do we bring back to, who, who do we bring into back to the callbacks? And I find that a lot of directors are like, they don't 
some of them have told me they haven't watched all the casting tapes. Like I, I would, I would sit in a room with my partner, my art director, and like we would watch like you know five hours of of right. auditions, right, and just checking off who we like. And this one, this one director, I, I'm not going to mention his name. <laughs> He's a great director and, and, a, and, a, and a great guy, but um, he said he said, yeah, I, I'm kind of looking at the look. I'm just, I want to kiss it by look, right? And I I think about you and you sort of, I've sort of joked that you kind of are like the the love child of of James Dean and Ethan Hawke, right? (laughs) Right. In in, in a sense. And like, you know, at least like sort of like aesthetically. And it it would have been very easy to, to think about how you could have gone in a more sort of like movie star direction. Yeah. And it turns out that actually... You you might have done less things, and maybe some things are maybe are not as high profile. But you know, after after a big run, you're sort of you have this kind of integrity and, and artistry mm-hmm. to that's sort of connected to your reputation that I I don't think you might have had mm-hmm. if you would have just been sort of like you know pimped out as a <laughs> as a quote unquote movie star. You know, I I get what you're saying. I think there were a couple of things that I was very close to. Uh, I won't name them. Um, that had I gotten the part, it would have changed the direction of my life. Now, that's not necessarily to say that it all would have been roses after that. There are plenty of people who get an early break and then they, you know, they crash and burn. Um, but there were certainly, there were a couple of things that if I'd been cast in those, things would have been very different. But, you know, certainly when I started, I I, I wanted that. You know, I wanted those bigger movies and those bigger roles and and now I find myself here, and it does feel like this is the right place for me, that I get to create something, and I get to pioneer to a degree uh, this industry, this idea of the narrator, right? Which, listen, spoken word has been around forever, right? We know that, ever since the dawn of time. But the industry, this industry in particular, is growing in leaps and bounds right now. And for the first time, you're starting to get this idea of the celebrity narrator, right? That people are going to go listen to something because somebody read it. And I think that's pretty new. And I feel like I'm kind of at the at the forefront of that. And that is not something that I could have imagined 20 years ago or 25 years ago when I started. It didn't exist. And so to have gotten to this point and be this person that gets talked about and written about in this field, which is new, is very exciting to me. Because I couldn't have done that if I'd gotten those bigger roles. So it got me to this place, which is the right place for me. I'll just shift gears a little bit. What's been your fondest memory so far as an actor? And maybe what's been the worst? <laughs> I, have, uh, I have two memories that I'm going to share. Uh, one is kind of a bittersweet one, but I, 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 it was so vivid that I remember it to this day. So when we finished filming Dinner Rush, um, we shot down in Tribeca, and we were at this restaurant. It was a very intense three- or four-week shoot. And I remember it was my last day, and I said goodbye to everybody, and it was a nice day out. We'd started uh, in January, but somehow it was a warm February day, and I walked along, and I just, I just started crying. Is something like very emotional kind of came over me. And I walked into this bar and I just sat down and had a beer mid-afternoon. And I had this, this sensation that I had done really good work. And that 
felt so important to me that I'd really busted my ass to get this part right. And I'd worked intensely for three weeks on, on set and also weeks before in prep. And it was one of the proudest moments of my life, even though I was just sitting there by myself. And I didn't know if the movie was going to do well. Uh, and it turned into this kind of little indie cult hit. Uh, but at the time, it's like you just wrap a movie and you don't know what's going to happen with it. But that moment and that feeling has stayed with me ever since. And it, what, came, what mattered in that moment was that I had the sensation that I had done something. There was no outside force telling me, oh, you're great, or oh, this movie's a hit. It was my internal feeling that it mattered. And so that is one. And the other is a very similar one, which goes back to The Sopranos. So that scene that you referenced earlier, where um, the Christopher character ends up shooting up and we're in the car, so you can't really tell when you watch it because it just looks like two guys in a in the car and it's raining. But I'm going to lay out some of the circumstances of the scene because it was interesting. It was the last scene of the week. So this is day five of the shoot. It's about two in the morning. The crew is exhausted. Everybody wants to go home. And it's this big scene for me. Um, and a flash flood hits. We're out in New Jersey under this uh, overpass. And we shoot the scene and we get to Michael's side and they sh you always shoot the star first. So they did his coverage. And then we go back into holding. They're moving the cameras and the lights around to the other side. And I look over and I see Alan Taylor, the director, huddled with the... Uh, Terry Winter was there as one of the writer-producers uh, and a couple of the other producers. And I see them huddled in a corner and I, can, I know what they're talking about. They're saying, can we go on? Can we finish this scene? It, the rain was that bad. They somehow conclude that they can get at least, they can squeeze five more minutes out of this. So they send us back out. The water is literally ankle deep at this point. We're walking through. There's cables in the water. I'm thinking I'm going to get electrocuted. Like, this is how we die. We, go, <laughs> we get back in the car. Alan taps on the window. I roll it down. He looks at me and he says, I, I'm very sorry, but I only have time for one take. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, this is my big scene in this big show, and you're giving me one take? Roll the window back up. You know, here we go. Action, go. And I had this this moment where I, I froze initially, and I thought, this is a disaster, right? Like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And in that one moment, I found that 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 quiet, right, that little space where I said, you can do this. You're ready for this. And I did one take of all that stuff you mentioned earlier, all the reactions, all the, the works, everything. And then, boom, okay, goodbye, go home, everybody go. And I thought, that is kind of one of the greatest moments of my life. Not the Sopranos part of it, but the idea that, like, you're put on the spot and you have this one chance to do something are you going to deliver? And honestly, it changed the course of my life because I suddenly had this new level of belief in myself. And I thought, I can do anything because I just did that. I was given one chance at two in the morning in a flash flood to pull out the performance of my life. And I did it. And it went on to become this like classic scene. And it's just, so when I think of that, that is my probably my happiest moment of, of all of my career. 
Uh, the worst parts, I have a number of them. <laughs> um, I won't I won't name them. Uh, there were a couple of things that were so disappointing not to get uh, cast in that I, you know, I alluded to them earlier. They would have been sort of life-changing, career-changing, financial-changing sort of things. Um, but you have to let those go, and you do. Uh, and again, it sort of all brought me here. So I'm not going to get into the worst part too much. No, you know, I, the, the, this story that you just told is is mesmerizing to me. It's mesmerizing. I, I, you know, um, one of my previous uh, guests, Spencer Ludwig, the recording artist, yeah. you know, ha- had been talking to me about um, you need to prove to yourself you can do something yeah. hard to have the confidence to continue to do it. Yeah. And I, I, I think that there's an interesting alignment in that. You know? Yeah, it really, uh, it did change my whole thinking about myself and my life. And it was shortly thereafter that I left Los Angeles and came back to New York with, you know, my one suitcase and thought, I don't know what's waiting for me, but I know I can do it. And it, it really comes back to that moment. It was incredibly powerful for me. Let's talk about collaboration. Um, you know, like, the, you don't have to... I wrote the question about Sopranos, but really it could be mm-hmm. across anything that you've that you've really worked on. But um, the interplay, you know, any anything involving film or television, the interplay between writers, directors, the other actors, and the and the showrunners, mm-hmm. and sort of in that sort of matrix. Yeah. How do you how do you exert your your creativity and your influence there? When you come into a show. I mean, I'm happy to talk about The Sopranos because it's interesting because I came in in season six. The show was already a juggernaut, right? And when you come in as a guest, you don't have an understanding of the whole vision, right? So there's not a whole lot that you're you're not just going to show up and say, hey, how about we rewrite this line and change my costume? You're never going to come back, right? Because you don't know what they're looking at. Um, so you, you tread a little cautiously there, although I will say that The Sopranos had this sort of magic about it. I've never been on a set that felt like that. And there was a part of me that was just like, you know, just kind of go with the magic here. Just like, just ride this this wave and you'll be fine. On other shows, uh, one example, so I did a show called Quarry, uh, which HBO produced. Uh, unfortunately, it only lasted one season, um, but I was a series regular. Uh, so for season one, so that was I came in at the beginning and I had been with the, I I was in the pilot, which then got recast and redone, but I stayed with the second shooting of the pilot. So that was interesting because I was there from the beginning and I got to know the writers and I got to know the producers and the director. And I had a much bigger hand in what was happening with my character there. So again, they have a vision of things. The director has a vision of things. And so you, you kind of want to just suggest things and you want to, suggest things based on what they're giving you. I think it would be a grave mistake to come in and just throw something out there that really just didn't make any sense. It would kind of say to people that you're not paying attention. So what I did was I I created a, a look to start with, and I had these custom glasses made, which I thought this character has to wear these glasses. And I showed them to to the director, and they fit. They were in the period. They fit the costume. They fit everything. And he wasn't convinced somehow. He's like, ah, I'm not seeing it. So I grabbed the, the uh, set photographer, this woman, and I said, do me a favor. Shoot some pictures of me 
with these glasses and shoot some pictures of me without these glasses, and we'll show him both. But do me this favor on top of it. The pictures with the glasses make them great. The pictures without the glasses make them terrible. So we shot the pictures with the glasses, very flattering, you know, nice side lighting. The ones without the glasses, like this glare in the face, not nearly as attractive. So I kind of manipulated the situation a little bit. He saw the two pictures, like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, this one with the glasses, much better. Um, But it allowed me to create the character because the glasses were more than just glasses to me. They said something about who this guy was. And then those glasses became very much identified with this character. And then suddenly the writers started writing these things for a guy who wore glasses. And so he suddenly had a book in his hand all the time, like he was a little more, you know, he was a bit of a reader. He was a little studious, right? And then and then they, they wrote all these other things based around this choice that I had made. So my point is that, like, I threw something into the water, which I, which I thought made sense, and then they liked it so they could run with it and grow something beyond that. And I think that's the smart way to do it. It really has to be this interactive process. You listen to what's coming, you think about it, you give something back, you let them respond to it, and then you have this back and forth and you create something together. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's funny. I'm thinking about how um, early in my career as as an ad guy, um, I I worked on this campaign for NFL fantasy football. And there was kind of the, the casting. Um, we ended up casting this great actor named P.J. Byrne, you know, who's since he's since been in um, Wolf of Wall Street, Horrible Bosses. I mean, he's a he's a solid right. working supporting actor, character actor. Um, and, you know, the, the script the, to, to me, the script at the time, I was very young. And to me, it was just it was about a gag. Right. right. It was a gag. It was like he can't pronounce T.J. Hushman Zada. Okay. Right, that was like that was the gag, right. of and the, you can't of the, either. Right. <laughs> neither can I. Neither can I. That was the that right. was the inspiration for the for the idea, right? right. But but PJ showed up in the um, in the callbacks, who and he had done so much sort of work around my script, right? Mm-hmm. Like he had just he had figured out who this person was, right? right? So when he when he auditioned, it wasn't just like a guy that was like bungling a, a, a football player's last name. Right. He was this sort of nebbishy. Uh, you know the Shlomazel, really. Right. He was kind of like this, like Shlomazel character. Right. And I didn't see, like, when I wrote when I wrote the script, it's like I didn't think about who the character was. I just thought, what was the joke? What was mm-hmm. the setup? What was the punchline? And I started to realize at that point how much sort of contribution an actor can bring to it, and how. The, an actor can really sort of dimensionalize right. a script in a way that maybe a writer just didn't even have in their mind. Because like for me to sell something through, creative directors, clients, they just they just want to see the gag, right. you know. Right. But he brought so much to it and it just completely elevated it. And then once he had elevated it in terms of what he what the sort of backstory was, it helped us cast sort of ensemble around right, him right. and now we have a campaign and we've right. got like a package of five commercials and right. they're all friends and they're they're all have their sort of role within this like little social you know this little community of, of dudes that are like into fantasy football and yeah i mean i, I even on he sets, built something off of what you gave him right? exactly and that's why that's why it works somebody did tell me once that like when you walk into a room that the uh, you know the casting process all the you walk in it's like the last supper sitting there right it's the director and producers and casting directors and all these people they 
want nothing more than for somebody to walk in that room and be the person they're looking for. That's exactly right. right. And there's two things that can happen. It's like, one, it can be the person they imagined, or two, it can surprise them and be so on point that they think, oh my God, this is it. The person they never imagined. The person they never imagined, but it works, right? Yeah. So, but the point is that you as the actor have to bring something, right? Because they're not just you know, putting robots in front of a camera. They want a flesh and blood person to fill this out for them. So, but it all starts, I do think that it's important to recognize that the actor is one of the last pieces that comes into the puzzle. Uh, you know, somebody else created the project, somebody else wrote it, somebody else did all the scouts, somebody, you come in at the end, right? And it's, it is important to remember that. So you are building on a whole lot of pieces that have been put together before you even showed up. And so just be smart about what's happening around you. Like, listen, look, feel it out, read the room, you know, and then you'll get a lot of information which will tell you where to go. Yeah, indeed. I want to talk a little bit about um, resilience Hmm. um, as a topic. I imagine that the amount of rejection that creative people in my industry face is probably only second or third to the amount of rejection that actors deal with pretty much daily. And uh, I, I just want to know a little about how do you handle this rejection and have you built resilience as your career has gone on? Every actor faces disappointment and rejection. I remember reading an interview with Dustin Hoffman, you know, the great legendary Dustin Hoffman. And he said, after I finish every film, I feel like I'm hanging on by my fingernails and nobody's ever going to hire me again. And I thought, but you're Dustin Hoffman. Like, you must have 10 offers a day. Like, And what it highlighted to me was that it was a feeling. He felt the same way I did. Even though he's Dustin Hoffman, he has his Academy Awards, he's, you know, this iconic actor, he still feels the same way I do. And so even, you know, the the the, the actor starting out or the struggling actor or the big Hollywood star, they're kind of going through the same thing. Yes, the Hollywood star may have more money and the trappings may be different, but the feeling is the same. So if you're going to make a long go of it in acting, it's something you're going to have to deal with for your the entirety of your career. Yeah. You do get, yeah, it's just it's there, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean I I think I think you're touching on the idea that it's it's a sort of combination of humility and insecurity. Right. And it's important it's important to I, I think it's important to have those things, right? Because the worst thing is to just be so self-assured right. that you've nailed it that you won't that you don't try. Right. You stop trying because right. you're so you, you've you've been so conditioned by the hype right. that you don't have to you don't have to go that to hit that level, and that's what keeps people doing great things. It goes back to what you were saying before: to continuing to challenge yourself. Right. right, it requires you to always be uncomfortable and to have that level of doubt. And if you're not, if you don't have that level of doubt, maybe you're not doing the right thing. But I do think it's important uh, for people, you know, who are starting out or who, or who wonder, like, what's wrong with my career or my life, to recognize that this this struggle and this need for resilience is going to be there at every phase of your career. You think about, you hear these stories like, it took Marty Scorsese 10 years to put together this film. And again, it's like, you, it's like this huge iconic name and you think, 
people must be lining up to give Marty Scorsese millions of dollars to make whatever he wants to make. It's not the case. He's had many projects he's wanted to make and couldn't get made, right? And there are actors who are like, I was dying for that part and I didn't get it. And -and so-and-so won the Academy Award. That was my Academy Award. You know, whatever it is. It's the same way that like the person who's just starting out and they're 22 years old and they're like, I want the guest spot on this show and I didn't get it and I feel like a loser, right? You're going to have to deal with this. The way I've... You, you do build this muscle as the years go by. Um, you, you develop that thicker skin. But I remember early on hearing this, this phrase. I don't know what it applies to exactly, but it's don't let go of the rope. I don't know what that means exactly. But I think it's like, okay, if you're hanging by a rope, like, and there's a gorge down below and you're going to crash on the rocks or something, just if you want to survive don't let go of the rope, right? That's the sort of simplest answer. (laughs) If you let go, you're done. Um, And I was like, okay, yeah, don't let go of the rope. Like, hang on. Just Mm -hmm. hang on. Because Mm -hmm. that will keep you going, that will keep you alive, that will keep you from crashing on the rocks. And something will happen, right? Maybe you'll swing over to another place and then you can let go of the rope when it's safe. But in that moment, don't let go of the rope. And I feel like that has kind of informed my entire career. It's kind of this, like, just don't give up. Don't quit. Just hang on. And it'll it'll keep going. Fear, do you see it as a motivator or a debilitator? Debilitator. Debilitator. Yeah, without question. Because fear puts you in a protective stance. Fear generally means you're trying to get away from something. What you want to be doing, ideally, is going towards something. And so I think fear is the wrong way. Some people say it motivates them. I I don't really buy it. Because by its very nature, fear means you're in a defensive crouch. And you can't really be doing what you want to be doing if you're afraid. Okay. It's time to play false equivalents. Oh, good. I usually ask 10. With you, I've got 11. Okay. This one goes to 11. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay. Um, Disco or Yacht Rock? Disco. Griffith Park or Central Park? Central Park. Cannoli or Sfogliatelle? Cannoli. James Patterson or Danielle Steele? Patterson. Meisner training or practical aesthetics? Practical aesthetics. Nucky Thompson or Tony Soprano? Tony Soprano, come on. Poetry or prose? Poetry. Burberry or Armani? Burberry. Casino or Goodfellas? Goodfellas. Super salad? Salad. Machiavelli or Sun Tzu? Sun Tzu. All right, that's very good. So I guess the the, the final question then is uh, what advice would you give to your 22-year-old self? Wow, that is a great one. What I would tell my 22-year-old self. Okay, I'm going to tell a quick story. I met a manager very early on. I didn't have representation. I was taking some meetings. And this woman said, I'm not going to represent you. I like you, but I'm not going to represent you because I don't know what to do with you. And then she said to me, 
You're going to get to a great place. It's just going to take you a long time to get there. And my 22-year-old self didn't understand that and didn't necessarily believe it. And so I took a few things early in my career just because I thought I had to work. Whereas I could have paid my bills in some other fashion and waited a little longer for other things to come along. So if I could go back to my 22-year-old self, I would say be patient. That's amazing. That's great. To learn more about the CLL podcast and its guests, please visit creativelifelessons.co. Creative Life Lessons was created by Penn Lee and Lyle Schemmer and is executive produced by Paul Greco and Jack Bradley. Audio engineering and voiceover provided by Jesse Marks. No part of this podcast may be reproduced in whole or in part in any manner without the permission of CLL Productions.